Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Hi, this is Colin. So today on the show, we're doing something that we've tried on other occasions, which is, I mean, you know, we've been on the air for almost 14 years. We've done a lot of shows about a lot of things. And there are certain things that we've talked about over and over. One of those things turns out to be Tom Cruise. Who knew? The seventh Mission Impossible movie is out right now. It's kind of a conjoined movie. Seven and eight are somehow or other stuck together. So why not talk about Tom Cruise in all of his manifestations? (laughs) And apparently, as I say, we've done that a lot. You're going to hear samples from conversations we've had through the years about, did I mention his name yet? Tom Cruise. show is about Tom Cruise. Now, whether it's about Tom Cruise, the person or the actor, or whether it's about the phenomenon of Tom Cruise is something you will eventually have to decide. But yes, we're going to look at Tom Cruise in the seventh decade of his life, the fifth decade of his career, and going on two decades after he jumped up and down on Oprah's couch. Later in the show, we're going to look specifically at the most successful movie of Cruise's career. I think you can probably figure out what that was, but maybe you can't. It came out last year, there's a hint. And the larger phenomenon of the aging action star. We'll talk about action movies more generally with NPR's Bob Mondello. But before we do any of that, we're going to listen to a short conversation we had about the kind of figure that Tom Cruise cuts later in his career. It's with our regular nose panelists, Jacques Lamar and Rich Holland. It starts with the co-founder of the Heartbeat Ensemble, Julia Rosenblatt, who shares what is perhaps the conventional wisdom on Tom Cruise. I just cannot stand to look at Tom Cruise, <laughs> let alone watch him or listen to him. Do you it's... think that Scientology f- factors into that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Tom Cruise, you know, everybody always says comedy is hard. Well, Tom Cruise, like right up to Tropic Thunder, where he mm-hmm. does this like insane comic caricature. Now, I don't know what kind of pan-Pacific bullshit power play you're trying to pull here, but Asia Jack is my territory. So whatever you're thinking, you better think again. Otherwise, I'm going to have to head down there and I will rain down on a godly firestorm upon you. You're going to have to call the United Nations and get a binding resolution to keep me from destroying you. I am talking scorched earth, mother I will massacre you. I will you up. And in weird roles like Magnolia and then, you know, I mean, William Goldman famously said that in Rain Man, the hard part was the Tom Cruise part. That once Hoffman, you know, mastered the mannerisms of his character, Tom Cruise is the guy who's got to sell this whole idea, kind of be a bridge to us. I'm very sorry about that. That man right there is my brother. And if he doesn't get to watch people's corn in about 30 seconds, he's going to throw a fit right here in your porch. And you can help me or you can stand there and watch it happen. Well, we like to watch cartoons. You think he'd settle for that? So, yeah, I'm, I'm actually I'm, – I'm solidly with Tom Cruise. But, but we should say that the world 
is with you, Julia. Yes, usually. Yeah. But I had to remind people because they were like, oh, he's not a real actor. Tom Cruise has had oh, yeah. three Academy Award nominations. Born mm-hmm. on the Fourth of July is a like, very Amazing. serious yeah. performance. Yeah. God, this, this is very difficult for me to say. We don't have to hear this, Ron. But, Mr. Wilson, I think I was the one that killed your son that night. I was the one. I was the one. I think he I think his ability to pick projects or the projects he's gotten offered has changed dramatically from the 80s and 90s. So, you know, Tom Cruise now has settled into kind of a rhythm, a certain kind of movie. The Mission Impossible movies, in particular, the seventh installment, Dead Reckoning Part One, is in theaters now, and it's kind of the reason why we're doing this show. And one thing that I did, I started to rewatch the first Mission Impossible movie, which was directed by Brian De Palma. It came out in 96, therefore shot in 95. And what's kind of hilarious about it is all the tech in the movie, and Mission Impossible movies have a lot of tech in them, all the tech, all the computer stuff, it just kind of looks like all the crap you had in the mid-90s. It's very dial-up looking. (laughs) And now here we are, six more iterations out from there, and everything has changed, and just the smoothness the the frictionless quality of all the tech is just extreme. And Tom Cruise looks pretty much the same. <laughs> you know? I mean, there have been about four tech revolutions. Tom Cruise, eh, he looks a little bit older. Not very much. It's weird. Anyway, we had a conversation about the sixth installment of Mission Impossible, Fallout. And you're going to hear three of our wonderful nose panelists, Jim Chaplin, Tanisha Dugan, and Sam Hatch. This is the trap. We are being directed. Hunt! Sir, there are still two plutonium cores in the wind. And you lost them! Don't make this any harder than it already is. I can no longer protect you. Don't you understand that? This is as close as you're ever going to get to that plutonium. Sir, you don't actually believe this. I believe I've been given a choice to protect you or the IMF, which is why I'm bringing you in. And if I refuse? What do you think he's here for? You think he's some observer? He's an assassin! Erica Sloan's number one plumber. You go rogue, he's authorized to hunt you down and kill you. You know, I'd like to say that even though that scene comes rather late in the movie, we have spoiled nothing because we could play any scene from this movie and it still wouldn't help you understand the plot. I'm not saying that, by the way, as a negative thing because there are so many ways to enjoy this movie that do not depend on a complete grasp of the plot. I think uh, if you're an action person, you don't really need those important plot points to really enjoy it. It's it's just really pretty. Like mm-hmm. they just do a good job of showing us this story. Um, it's and quite s- painterly at times. At the it end, really is. there are these sort of Thomas Cole yeah. landscapes of yeah. Kashmir. Yeah. You think, wow, this is great looking. Yeah. It's, We're it's, all going to die. It's, it's <laughs> kind of like Tom Cruise. Very good looking. <laughs> And losing in substance in some ways. Right. So, Jim, what about you? Excellent travelogue, uh, (laughs) as you guys are alluding to. I want to go to all the places except for the cliffs. I have to say I went in initially resistant because I have Tom Cruise agnosticism. And he kind of won me over despite – and I'm not spoiling anything – the mandatory I can run really fast Tom Cruise scene. Yeah. And then I tried to think, is there a movie that Tom Cruise has made where he doesn't run really fast? There probably is. 
But I can't think of it. Rain Man, maybe. You think well, he yeah. could maybe but I think he even Gump? he probably probably there's probably some time where yeah. Dustin Hoffman kind of wanders off, just runs, has to run around looking for him, and he flails his arms and like very runnerly. Uh, so a, a few good men. Yeah, he doesn't yeah. run in a few good men. I'm being told. No, I'm not it's so softball. sure about there's that. Softball. Yeah. Nobody really runs the <laughs> softball. There. In the director's cut, he does run, yeah. and I just took it out. I really liked it though. It's I actually jumped out of my seat several times. And I think the movie ends four times and then starts again. And, right. and I was cool with that. It's a pretty long movie and I was cool with that too. I'm afraid of heights. So there was a terrifying scene about ten times for me. Right. Because I, I saw two iterations ago. I saw it in IMAX. The one where they're in Dubai in the tallest building. Yes. And I really did almost toss my cookies Yeah, yeah. Uh, just watching that. Now, I saw it in IMAX also this time around. And it, it didn't frighten me. But I was with two people who weren't IMAX comfortable. So we sat in the back row of the IMAX theater, which I think is sort of like watching it on your I, home I saw it in the screen. IMAX yeah. as well. You saw it IMAX? Okay. Yeah, yeah, so that's good. why you're having heights problems. Yeah, yeah. All right, Sam. <laughs> anyway, go ahead. Yeah, I had a blast with it. And I've been a fan of the series through its ups and downs. The down, of course, being the second one helmed by John Woo. Ever since J.J. Abrams got involved with it, with the third film, I think they've kind of maintained a pace and a consistent level of quality. And yeah, I mean, and at this point, you think, what else does Tom Cruise have in his bag of tricks? And and come to find out, he actually, you know, goes out and and performs all these amazing feats and learns how to do them on his own. So it's really until he finally stops doing amazing things in his spare time that will run out of Mission Impossible films. Right. But apparently, he like he even learned to fly a helicopter. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He even learned how to fly a damaged helicopter faster than an undamaged right, uh, right. Uh, yeah. helicopter, which is especially hard to do. But so – and I want to talk about that, Tanisha, because in a way, it, who cares? But in another way, there is a way – since he kind of has skin in the game almost <laughs> literally, right? There's some, like we all know that he famously does – as much, if not all, uh, of the so stuff that no can CGI be done. So there's no CGI in this movie. Well, I wouldn't say that. No, but he he does. I mean, all of those those stunts where he's hanging off hanging off the helicopter, he actually did as well. So yeah. whatever is underneath him is most likely CGI. But he actually was. There are Scientologists off waiting to catch you. Yeah, right. exactly. That's right. Um, Hundred Scientologists. Yeah, I mean, there's something really <laughs> incredible about. Tom Cruise really as a stuntman first and then an actor second, but a really good actor inside that talent that he does that is doing these stunts. And we've heard it, you know, for all of his movies, his co-stars are always like, I can't believe he does these things. I broke myself eight times across this film and he's still standing. I mean, that is sort of the key to his talent for sure. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to prevent the apostles from acquiring plutonium using any means at your disposal. If you or any members of your IMF team are caught or killed, the secretary will disavow any knowledge of your actions. Good luck, Ethan. This message will self-destruct in five seconds. I was cracking up when the mission self explodes. And I remember in the early episodes when like that was the first major action sequence of them. Episodes early Iterations. Early iterations. <laughs> but I remember like Mission Impossible 1 and 2 when, when you know, everything self-destructs. He had to like run out of the room before. It was really like, destructive. So it was like yeah. now kind it seems of like interesting. It, it might that even have like kind a of a pleasant aroma. Yeah. Right, right. It seems like he actually, you know, gets a little whiff of it. As Something it you, could, up, like, you yeah. could get one of those at Yankee Candle. <laughs> yeah, maybe. exactly. I think yeah. there's a, a little bit sandalwood. of aromatherapy going <laughs> right. on there. There is something right. nostalgic yeah. for me about that, having watched all of those early movies with my dad, to see like technology has gone so 
far mm -hmm. that like explosions are now elegant. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. The thing about Tom Cruise in this movie, though, is there's less Tom Cruisiness than, mm. than there typically is. And by which I mean, for example, there is like he actually has kind of a nice comic delivery. We've seen that in, in God knows in Risky Business and stuff like that. And and he doesn't do much this time, you know? I mean, there is one moment where somebody you says, You don't understand what you're involved in. I don't understand what I'm involved in. I don't understand what I'm involved in. What am I involved in? <laughs> but that's about it, yeah. you know? That's it. And that's in that place, CMI, there's this kind of moral seriousness that he has. And I, unfortunately, these movies erase themselves from my mind a lot after I've seen them. They self-destruct. They do. <laughs> they do self-destruct. And so I don't really remember. I just feel like this whole movie, there's a lot of talking about what is called the trolley problem in philosophy. Do you kill one person in order to save five people? You know, or, or, or I mean, this is just like in an almost didactic way repeated again and again through this movie. And then I have this whole other, whole other Christ theory about Ethan Hunt, which I'll come to. But whatever thing you have. There's a way in which he's kind of all business in this. There isn't a whole lot of the playful Tom Cruise. Yeah, this is a little darker, a little more serious, and, and it deals with him and his humanity a little bit more than the previous films were just mythologized him. Or, and he is still very much the Christ-like Ethan Hunt within the context of this film. His sacrifices keep us all going. And you even has to imagine a scene where he's undercover against his will, essentially, because he needs to just improvise in, in a scene. And he ends up going uh, down a path where he may be called upon to murder a bunch of innocent French policemen, etc. And him, him contemplating that and sitting with it. So I think he, he brought a little bit more intensity to it this time around. And yeah, you're right. There's not that much playfulness going on here. Luckily, he's got the rest of the team to kind of balance that. And Simon Pegg certainly brings a little bit of a jovial atmosphere to it. I'm relaxed. You don't sound relaxed. Luther, does he sound relaxed to you? <laughs> he sounds terrified. Please, I'm not terrified. I just have a bad feeling is all. I thought you said you were relaxed. It's entirely possible to be relaxed and extremely uneasy at the same time. No, it's not. You do it all the time. No, I don't. Yes, you do. No, he doesn't. I'm supposed to believe that you are perfectly relaxed. Right here. Now, in a, a dark alleyway, waiting to buy black market plutonium from a psychopath. Benji, I won't let anything happen to you. See, Benji, you're perfectly safe. That's easy for you to say. You're in the van. Well, you want to be in the field, tough guy. And tonight, Luther, I would like to be in the van. And I appreciate that they have been continuing to maintain a focus on the group dynamics. Ever since the third film, uh, they really realized that as much as people are coming for the Tom Cruise effect, that you need a, a group for a Mission Impossible series. And I like that the, the big kind of impossible mission here literally requires three of them to be doing something independently at the same time and, and collaborating. So Here's my theory, though. I think this is an instance where they can kill the protagonist and then bring somebody else in. Because as, as I've been hinting here, but I do think there's... impossible. There's well, there, there you go. <laughs> there's a Christology right now to this Ethan Hunt character. He's depicted again and again. We're told that he's prepared to give himself up, to sacrifice himself, to sacrifice happiness, that he's made difficult decisions for the greater good again and again. And even though we don't really feel very entitled with his character. We're told that all the time. He is kind of depicted as kind of a Christ figure. Yeah. So Sam, I'm thinking within the reality of this series, let's say they want Michael B. Jordan to take over the, the whatever the thing that's called, the IMF squad or yes, whatever yeah. it's called, the International Monetary Fund squad, whatever it is. <laughs> it is um, the IMF, yeah. <laughs> so 
If they want that, they can just kill Tom Cruise like on screen if he's willing to do it. Absolutely. I mean he is part and parcel. His Ethan Hunt character is him and vice versa. And I think really if they have to carry on without him, they have to jettison Ethan Hunt altogether and, and, and kill him. Make a martyr out of them. And it, the the rest of the cast have proven to be malleable, especially the IMF. The the people running it was Lawrence Fishburne in one film yeah. and then uh, I forgot who was in the fourth one and then now Alec Baldwin. So if they can change those guys all around, John Voight, of course, in the original, they can definitely change the focus on the agents. But yeah, they would definitely have to, I think, kill off Ethan. I don't think Ethan Hunt will be played by portrayed by another actor. That was Sam Hatch, Jim Chapdelaine, and Tanisha Dugan discussing the previous Mission Impossible installment, the sixth one, Fallout. Before we go to a break, though, we had a conversation with Carolyn Payne and Brian Slattery during production of a new Mission Impossible movie, the seventh one, which was shot during COVID. Tom Cruise was in the news because he'd had a meltdown on the set as social distancing protocols had broken down. The tape of his meltdown had gotten out. And here's how we handled that in January 2021. We are the gold standard. You're back here in Hollywood making movies right now because of us. Because they believe in us and what we're doing. I'm on the phone with every studio at night. Insurance companies. Producers. And they're looking at us and using us to make their movies. We are creating thousands of jobs, you I don't ever want to see it again. Ever. And if you don't do it, you're fired. And I see you do it again, you're gone. And anyone on this crew does it. That's it. And you too. And you too. And you. Don't you ever do it again. That's it. No apologies. So, Carolyn, we're going to start with you because you've actually been on some sets in your capacity as an actor. And as I understand it, you actually are kind of happy that there's a Tom Cruise out there enforcing these rules. Yeah, I never thought in my wildest dreams that I would find myself saying I agree with Tom Cruise. I'm going to lay that out there. But here I am saying I agree with Tom Cruise 100%. And I mean, all sets, they are trying their hardest. And, and you know, they have COVID compliance officers. And, you know, I think everyone does have really good intentions, but it's hard because especially if it's a shoot that you're doing for multiple days, like you, you tend to kind of start dropping your guard a little. And it's just such a weird way of working that none of us are even used to it. There is something really satisfying, Brian, about the way Tom Cruise sounds in that clip. I mean, he kind of sounds like an amalgam of most of the characters that he plays. And, oh, and, yeah. And yeah. I, I, it's sort of like if you were just if you were to tell me, give me a choice of watching a movie. And the only thing I knew about it was who the male lead was. And you said, gave me a choice of, I don't know, Nicolas Cage or Tom Hanks or Tom Cruise or John Travolta or whatever. I don't know. I would pick Tom Cruise almost every time if that's the only thing I knew. Kind of because of that, right? I mean, he really seems like he's not Jack Reacher or anything, but he's, you know, he thinks he's Jack Reacher. Yeah, he's definitely got his kind of like human bullet thing going on that he's <laughs> so good at. <laughs> yeah, and it's it is it is nice to see that being used for the forces of public safety finally, you know. <laughs> it's Yeah. Right. In some ways like he I 
I, I'm a I'm married to a pediatrician, so I know a lot of healthcare workers, and I feel pretty safe saying that he kind of speaks for them all right now. <laughs> like the level of exasperation that they feel with <laughs> like getting people to comply with what are like ultimately some pretty basic rules. Yeah, and but also just you know once again theatrically, Carolyn. A lot of times when you hear an actor who's talking on set and doesn't know it's being captured by video or whatever, they don't. There's something kind of unsatisfying about it. It's like, oh, well, he's not anywhere near as interesting or galvanizing, you know. Oh, but, yeah. But, I mean, totally. This is a really well put together dramatic monologue. Like this is, you know, a, a very empowered scene <laughs> that just happens to be him in real life. But you could totally take this and and just put it on on film as as Tom Cruise and it would be entertaining which is odd and i mean a lot of actors like you know there are kind of those blurred lines like maybe it's it's a mission impossible movie he's probably like real revved up and everything and kind of in that character so maybe that helped fuel some of this fire but it's it's a pretty it's a pretty epic and awesome rant with lots of great swear words too <laughs> that was carolyn payne and brian slattery from early 2021 after a break, we'll take a look specifically at Top Gun Maverick and the larger phenomenon of aging action stars. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the Go Team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. We're back. Now we're going to talk about the other major Tom Cruise franchise, that would be the Top Gun franchise. It's not as big a franchise. There's only two of them. The new one, Top Gun Maverick, is the sequel 36 years after the first one. It made $1.495 billion at the global box office. It basically made all the money in the world. All the money in the world went to Top Gun Maverick. And then we got some of it back, just you know, trickling back to us. Nominated for six Academy Awards, including Best Picture. Here's the news talking about it last year with James Hanley, Carolyn Payne, and Pedro Soto. You're team leader up there. Why are you, why is your team dead? Sir, he's the only one who made it to the target. A minute late. He gave enemy aircraft time to shoot him down. He is dead. You don't know that. You're not flying fast enough. You don't have a second to waste. We made it to the target. And superior enemy aircraft intercepted you on your way out. Then it's a dogfight. Against fifth generation fighters. Yeah, we'd still have a chance. In an F-18. It's not the plane, sir. It's the pilot. Exactly. I think it's actually the longest time between sequels of any major mainstream film which was incredible, but the movie in terms of, I think this movie, A, 
is superior to the original. It has an emotional heart, which is way better. I mean, the special effects, the writing, the dialogue, the characters, just everything is just so much better. There's sort of a weird thing that goes on in the world. There's a lot, in my opinion, of weird things that go on in this movie. But one of the things that happens at the start is that Ed Harris plays this general or admiral or something and he's like all into drones he's the drone lord and he's just basically thinks pilots are just so last year and you know this whole idea that, that the sooner we get rid of these human beings flying deadly pieces of warfare the better and then there's sort of this way in which you know tom cruise's character pete mitchell reasserts the human element here you know and the important humanity of all this and there's a way in which that is kind of mirrored by the actual production of this movie in the sense that, you know, Cruz and all these other actors, I mean, they really, really train for this stuff and they go up in the plane. Sometimes when you see them, they're actually in one of these damn jets up in the air with a, you know, IMAX camera pointed at them or something, you know, in an era where that kind of stuff is also sort of on the way out. You just put M- Mark Ruffalo on a soundstage in, in Vancouver and then just add in everything else in a bunch of other you know post-production studios. There's a way in which Cruz is kind of asserting. He's a throwbacky guy anyway, right? He doesn't like stunt doubles. He doesn't. He wants to like really be the guy in the movie. I, I, give me some James Haley type reactions to that. Well, I th- I think that he's actually one of those few people in the industry who actually commands enough money that he can bully somebody like Paramount and actually insist that the movie play in theaters. And I think that he's been proved right in terms of the grosses, of course. And it makes me think, actually, that in terms of movies that are made with green screens, which is very attractive to distributors and film studios because it's much, much cheaper, I think that this represents something really generational about how people are watching a movie. They really created a visceral sense that I think that those green screen CGI created environments that people have become so used to that now there's a generation of people who can actually see something different. And this really has some different things about it as a result of this sort of almost analog mechanical part to it. Obviously, the CGI is there and is part of it, but I think it's a very different kind of phenomenon. And I think it may be influential simply because of all the money it's made. Yeah, no, I mean, it's sort of on the surface of it, it's a weird decision because not that many people in the audience would have been saying under, under other circumstances, wow, well, I've flown F-18s and it's nothing like that. You know, they <laughs> haven't really sort of captured that. So, I mean, they're doing something else. They're rewarding us, I think, in the way that you suggest, in a different way. We don't know how close that is to an approximation of flying a fighter jet, but we do know that it's maybe exciting in a different and less flat way than we sometimes feel about the, about the CGI. So I think in a way that the movie, the first movie doesn't, this movie at least possibly or tries to create the notion of a journey for the the Maverick character. Mm-hmm. 36 years have gone by. He's still a captain. Val Kilmer's character is now an admiral and maybe even bigger than an admiral. You know, he's, I don't know, his credit card gets declined in bars and he's just, you know, there's this, this, this something slightly, slightly, slightly down at the heels here. There's a way in which an era really is passing him by or he's just getting too old to be the guy that he was, but he hasn't figured out anybody else to be. And so this is that moment where he's going to learn something else. And I guess I'm wondering how well you think 
this movie kind of ultimately delivers on the implied promise that Maverick, Pete Mitchell, is going on a journey and he's going to learn how to do team building and how to transfer his skills to other people and not be such a big egoistic jerk. I don't know. know. Go ahead. One of the biggest kind of complaints I have about these like long between kind of reboots that have been happening like like mad about you or all these shows where the characters come back 20 or 30 years later is how they're all kind of depressing because everyone's so old and everything's so different and they're either trying to like be how they were a long time ago or you know they're just old and it's a different thing and it just feels sad and i think that because tom cruise is kind of ageless because i think that was sort of the intent i I think this works as this journey in a lot of ways. I, I think it I think it, it pays off. I think they do a very good job of him being rather than kind of old and obsolete, I think it's that he's just kind of more static and there's unresolved things he needs to really get through to be able to kind of get through, you know, the final phase of his life. And I think that they do that really well. And I thought, wow, aging male action stars, this is a trend. But once I started looking into it, we found that it's really kind of an across-the-board trend. This is Ben Lindbergh, a senior editor at The Ringer, where he wrote a piece last year called The Golden Age of the Aging Actor. It's not just men, it's not just action movies or even movies at all. It's it's TV shows, too. There has been a, a general aging of the top listed actors on various projects. I think one big part of it is that there's just generally been a, a fracturing of culture. People talk about the decline of the monoculture. We're all in our own media silos. We're all watching our own things. There are fewer stars who are kind of crossover mainstream stars. Everyone agrees on their household names. And Liam Neeson and Tom Cruise and Adam Sandler and people like this who were stars in the 80s or 90s, they date from an earlier era. And so they have achieved a kind of cultural penetration that is hard for younger folks to achieve today. So you can keep building movies around these kinds of stars But of course, they get older and older every year. So that contributes to the trend. And I think relatedly, there have been many more sequels and reboots and prequels and just sort of generally mining existing IP, things that people have some awareness of and fondness for. And again, if you have sequel after sequel and Tom Cruise appears almost exclusively in sequels and reboots and such today then again, those stars are going to keep getting older because it's the same stars appearing in movies or releases in the same franchises. I think one thing you could say is that maybe we're looking at this from the perspective of people who remember the the pre-monoculture times or were sort of nostalgic for the old age of the movie star. That's sort of a, a theme of Top Gun Maverick is just like Tom Cruise. He's the last one standing, right? And he's being phased out and there's a newer breed coming along. Part of that is also the aging of the audience and the American population in general. We're all kind of getting older, right? Just the country as a whole has gotten significantly older. And so maybe audiences want to see people who reflect their own interests, their own experiences, or their own memories. And of course, you have cosmetic surgery. You have people being in better shape 
taking better care of themselves, et cetera. So you have people in their 50s or 60s who don't necessarily look like people in their 50s or 60s used to look. <laughs> so maybe they can convincingly play certain parts that people their age might not have been able to, or just the audiences would not have been as receptive to people their age playing those parts. Right. Just to go back to Top Gun, Top Gun in a way, kind of in its fictional context, is essentially making the same argument, right? Because the pretext of the movie is that Tom Cruise's character needs to be brought in to tutor, to teach Mm -hmm. this new generation of young studs because obviously his time has passed. But And this isn't a huge spoiler, but at a certain point he goes, no, you know what? I'm still the only guy who can do this. I have to go do this. (laughs) You guys can follow along and do some other stuff, but I'm the one who has to do this. Right. Yes, the the big theme of the movie, you know, as, as Maverick says to his students, time is your greatest enemy, and he's being told that by everyone in the movie. He's headed for extinction. He's over the hill. He's a relic. The end is inevitable, Maverick. Your kind is headed for extinction. Maybe so, sir. But not today. At the end of the movie, of course, he's the only one who can go out there and not just teach, but do. He's still the best because he's Tom Cruise and he's the star of Top Gun Maverick. But really, it's also kind of true in real life because look at how much money that movie made, right? Tom Cruise is the one who can headline an action movie like that and actually sell it based partly on the power of the personality of Tom Cruise. He's still a big draw, even at 60 years old. So, Carolyn, I have this sort of theory that nobody in this movie has much reality except for Maverick, that everybody in the movie is essentially kind of refracted through the lenses of Maverick's eyes, that nobody's character is particularly well-developed. Ed Harris is there just to be this hard-ass guy who wants to convert to drones. That whole idea is immediately dropped, by the way, after the first few minutes of the movie. John Hamm is another hard-ass guy who seems to maybe, you know, convert a little bit along the way. But, you know, once again, not a well-developed character. And I think most of the fly are kind of like that. Bill Pullman's son, Lewis, plays the kind of nerdy, bespectacled guy whose name is Bob. He doesn't have a cool handle. But I mean, nothing's really done with that. I mean, maybe an exception is Jennifer Connelly, who plays kind of the love interest in this. She plays mm-hmm. Penny, who owns a bar, and, and they appear to have had some relationships in the past that ended in heartbreak, maybe even multiple times. But Carolyn, even that part, I don't think it's written especially well. I think you could argue that Jennifer Connelly takes it and makes that character something other than just something that is in Maverick's field of vision. I was just sort of wondering what you're thinking about the characters, the acting, and maybe specifically Connolly. Yeah, I mean, I do very strongly feel like this movie, you are not watching this movie for character development or Oscar-winning like acting performances. This movie is clearly just an action movie that has a sense of nostalgia and that weird football scene that looks like an Abercrombie ad from like <laughs> circa 2000. I guess, yes, an argument could be made that Jennifer Connelly delivers the performance with the most heart. I wasn't like wowed by that. And I found myself just not even caring. I had no, I, I was not invested at all in their relationship. I think that for me, one of the strongest performances was Val Kilmer. I think that scene with Tom Cruise and Val Kilmer was probably one of the most well done and and interesting as far as performances go, especially like knowing kind of more into Val Kilmer 
and his his health struggles and everything and how they made that part of his character. That was interesting. I just felt like, you know, this movie, it's it's shallow. It's shallow. And if you find it fun to watch like cool planes flying on a cool mission and, you know, it's fine on that level. But I mean, I didn't go into it expecting any sort of depth. And it definitely delivered with, you know, just kind of surface level action fun. And I think that that's actually a very strong sort of corporate decision. They're not going to, in a film like this, which is really attempting to reinvent a kind of genre, a different kind of action movie, and it's going to have certain elements. Like one of the issues is that that they worried about in the first thing is, you know, well, is it just going to draw guys to come and see it? And so, you know, they say, oh, well, okay, we've got to have some uh, a woman in it to, you know, to draw some more women into the audience. You know, these are very sort of commercial decisions that get made about a film like this. And I think that it's really... I mean, I found it interesting and entertaining as an action movie, but except for that scene with Al Kilmer, which for many reasons is is kind of touching, it really would seem, character development would seem to stop the action and actually trip the film up. It's one of those curious things, because I mean, I'm always watching movies with the idea that I want to know more about character and I want character development. But in a movie like this, you can see how the thinking would be that, okay, this is going to detract from the attention of an audience that is seeking the next thrill. And the only thing character-wise really is kind of oblique, which is Tom Cruise himself, which is the fact that he can play this part and be in this part after so long in the industry, playing different parts since the original Top Gun. And he looks so capable, he looks so good, and he's playing the part very seriously. He is sort of the character, the only character, I think, in the movie that has any significance. That was James Hanley, Carolyn Payne, and Pedro Soto talking about Top Gun Maverick. After a break, we'll talk to NPR's Bob Mondello and The Washington Post's Stephanie Mary about the joy of action movies, just, you know, more generally. Okay, some people to thank here. Eugene Amatruda, the very patient cat pastor, Katie Tularski, Kion Wolf, Jonathan McPants is the person who's putting this whole thing together. And now you are going to hear a conversation we had in 2017 with NPR's film critic, the legendary Bob Mondello, and Stephanie Mary, who was the Washington Post's designated Fast and Furious reviewer, which is a very strange job, but somebody's got to do it. I mean, I think one thing that we you, we could easily argue is that more people watch more kind of dumb movies these days than in the past. If you look at the top 10 box office movies of all time adjusted for inflation, then it's Sound of Music and Gone with the Wind. And you know, There's a lot of movies like that that are sort of involve actual human beings and don't have anybody who's a superhero, don't have any science fiction component, don't have anything and like no that. And no right. car crashes. And no car crashes. But if you just I, look at box office in terms of today's numbers... It's it is all superheroes, car crashes. I mean, pretty much. Except Titanic is probably the only movie that's in there anywhere that just involves regular old human beings. 
Well, I think, you know, even even when they don't involve human beings, uh, or <laughs> let me take that back, when they involve human beings and other folks, let's say Avatar, for instance, mm-hmm. the picture is enormous. It's a huge hit. Audiences are fascinated by it. And I think they're fascinated by the eternal verities of drama. I mean, you know, I, I, I wouldn't want to go back to the ancient Greeks on that. But I, I think as a general thing, audiences like movies that are about family, that are about identifiable characters who have emotions and who respond in ways that are sort of recognizable. Right. And are there franchises, Bob, like let's say the Transformer franchise, where you, as Bob Mondello, don't really feel as though you need to see all the rest of them? <laughs> well, I certainly don't expect to see the rest of those. I, that franchise would have to do something very different before it, it was worth our revisiting in a critical way on mm. NPR. But, I, you know, I, I've been back to a lot of movies that strike a lot of people as silly to see the second and third and fourth versions of them, and, and sometimes the 25th, if you talk about the, the James Bond movies, for instance. And, you know, at some point in the middle of, of that series, that, that series got really mindless. And then it sort of came back in the last few when Daniel Craig got involved. So I think as a practical matter, there are kinds of pictures that, yeah, I decide there's nothing really to say about this movie except it blows things up in a, in a persuasive way. You know, and and that's not really. I mean, you know, these days with special effects, I think we're we're there. Every everything, I, I don't know, the mutant turtles can blow things up in, a, in an effectively persuasive way. At which point, I'm not sure that that means anything anymore. It seems to me that maybe right around 2008, there might have been a watershed mo- moment attached to the movie The Dark Knight, where how can I put this? Certain movies lost their presumption of lowbrow or even low middlebrow status. I think maybe prior to that, there was probably some portion of the critical establishment and aesthetes in general who would say, well, if they're wearing capes and cowls and you know superhero costumes and stuff like that, that automatically kind of ghettoizes it in a certain way. And you know, the Academy famously expanded its best picture category, I think partly as a reaction to this, well, you know, there's some of these movies, we're going to have to start taking them seriously in a way that we never did before. And the only way to do that is to expand the category to (laughs) 10 pictures instead of five. Well, I, yes, and I I think most of the critical establishment always took superhero movies seriously insofar as we were talking filmmaking, not necessarily seriously in terms of the writing, because an awful lot of them are written very badly. But, you know, this is a problem of romantic comedies, too. I mean, it, it applies to everything. I think superhero movies and fantasy films are arguably much bigger these days than they used to be, partly because filmmaking has progressed to the point that fantasy is something that they can that Hollywood can do very persuasively. Notice I keep on coming back to that one word, persuasive, yeah. that a picture, a, a movie, needs to be persuasive in some way for an audience to like it. And I, I think I haven't really given this any thought. I'm talking off the top of my head here. It seems to me that Hollywood can now make really stupid stuff persuasive. Now, Bob Mandela, one thing it strikes me that that helps some of these movies is just having really good actors in them. So if you try to make Point Break without Patrick Swayze and without Gary Busey for comic relief and stuff like that, maybe you don't have. Well, actually, they did that and they didn't have such a good movie. <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, I mean, you try to make Speed without Keanu and Sandra Bullock and uh, Jeff Daniels. I think you, once again, maybe you have a lesser movie. All right. Pop quiz. Airport. Gunman with one hostage. He's using her for cover. He's almost to a plane. You're a hundred feet away. Jack. 
Shoot the hostage. What? Take her out of the equation. Go for the good wound and he can't get to the plane with her. Clear shot. You're deeply nuts, you know that? One thing that does seem to help these movies a little bit, I mean, Vin Diesel is getting measurably worse as an actor with each passing year. It's like they hit him in the head with a plank till eventually he, he will only be able to say Groot. But like some of these other people, I mean, some of these actors are pretty good. I, I absolutely agree. I, the, for what they're being asked to do, they are terrific, in fact. And, and, you know, they're, they're sort of action movie stars. And, you know, the actors are all, I mean, you know, in many parts of the world, these actors are going to be the prime exemplars of, of what Hollywood's all about. So, Bob, I think it's time, it's time for you to come clean. Um, mm-hmm. What are some movies that you like that you're kind of ashamed of liking? In other words, movies that you, <laughs> if you saw it in the movie, that you probably have to put like a Groucho Marx nose and glasses on so nobody really knew that Bob Mondillo was going to see this movie. Well, see, that's the thing. I don't get ashamed of them because I'm a critic and I get to say that they're okay, right? <laughs> I mean, I, I can give them some critical credibility. I the, the one that I really loved and had a lot of trouble talking people into going to originally was Tremors. <laughs> I, I just love it. I, I love the movie. It's, it's about giant worms trying to eat Kevin Bacon. And uh, it seems like a perfectly reasonable, you know, (laughs) storyline to me. It mocks a certain kind of movie. And I got a big, I mean, the, the kind of movie being the incredibly low budget horror flick that was made in someone's backyard with, you know, very few special effects, but somebody dressed up in an outfit, right, right. Of, of some sort. And this particular one was done with a somewhat bigger budget, and I think they intended it to be a bigger picture. And it never really clicked with people, but I, I, I would guess, I, I haven't looked it up, but I would guess it actually did okay with the critical fraternity. It just didn't click particularly. Right. Wait, wait, wait. was not falling for it. This one ain't dumb. He's trying to trick us. Use your bomb. It's our last one. What else are you going to use it for? So what if we make it to the rocks? We'll be dead in three days anyway. Well, I want to live for the three days. Actually, it's well known that Sir Tom Stoppard did the third rewrite on that script. But, um, but so Stephanie, I have Bob's list. Uh, I have half Bob's list of movies that that he thinks are sort of clever, but maybe play a little bit dumb. And it includes Galaxy Quest, which I think is a brilliant movie. Mad Max: Fury Road, Tremors, The Big Bus, Con Air. Stephanie, I would say Con Air on that list is the only one that that really is kind of a dumb movie. I don't know. What's your reaction? I agree. I mean, Mad Max Fury Road, I thought that was pretty brilliant. But Con Air, wow, that is, that's a special one. Nicolas Cage <laughs> just at his most hor- horrific acting. But, but man, if it wasn't entertaining. I think I saw that one in the theater. And I was actually going back and looking through some of the, the action movies I loved as I was growing up. And the 90s just had a plethora of these kinds of movies. You know, you've got Speed and Con Air and Face Off and The Rock. There were a lot of these sort of terrible but extremely entertaining action movies. No, I mean, this is this is what's... Uh, I, speed. I Yes, I agree. It's silly. 
on, on some level, but it's a really well-made movie. And I think, I, I, I don't know this, but I'm guessing that the critical fraternity jumped up and down over it originally, right? So mm-hmm. so my problem with the, the notion of, you know, sort of dumb but good mm-hmm. is that usually they're dumb like a fox, right? They're, they're, mm-hmm. they're very adept at tapping into something that the public likes. Now, Snakes on a Plane... Is, is a is the kind of picture that okay it was terrible and all it had was an a, a title really I mean that, that was that was it and what were you gonna do with that once you once you put the snakes on the plane there was nowhere to go with that movie and so you know there are some like that that are that try to sell themselves in exclusively on the notion of what they're put together with I I used to for some reason in my Wikipedia entry somebody put one time that that I had a theory that the fewer words it took to express what a film was, the dumber it probably was. And the example they gave was DeVito and Schwarzenegger are twins, <laughs> right? And yes, that's, <laughs> I mean, that was a dumb picture. But but as a practical matter, there is something to be said for the the kind of movie that can be summed up in its title. And, and, that, and Hamlet is not that kind of movie, right? I right. mean, Hamlet is more complex, and its title doesn't tell you everything you need to know about it. We're going to run out of time here. There's so many things I want to t- talk about. But I, <laughs> Stephanie, let's talk about Independence Day, all right? So I happen to really like Independence Day a lot. I, I, I know of no possible intellectual defense for it other than once you've seen Independence Day resurgence, you understand what an incredible masterpiece Independence Day was in the first place. <laughs> but but I don't know. Is there is there a way to make an argument for Independence Day other than just we like it? I yeah, I mean I actually think that it was it was smartly put together and and it has good dialogue and it has good character development. You care about these characters You've got sort of the the comic relief, which breaks up the tension of the alien invasion. You know, you've got like the Jeff Goldblum, you know, and the wisecracking and Will Smith. I mean, you've got just some some really great characters. Oops. Oops. What does that mean? What do you mean? Uh, no, I, I got it. I'm uh, some jerk didn't put. I know I, what I, I, I mean. When fine. I say oops, what do you mean saying oops there? Well, you say we try that one again, huh? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Without the oops. That away. But then I think that at the time, especially the special effects were were pretty impressive. I remember seeing that in the theater as well on July 4th, actually. And it was one of the first times I think that I had ever seen such mass destruction on the big screen. I think that was kind of a I mean, that was the first time I could remember it, and it hit me really hard. Now we see it all the time, especially with all these, you know, Marvel and DC Comics movies. It's always about, you know, mass world destruction. Um, oh, in 2012, time, wiped out the the world. That's right. Yeah. Right? I mean, okay, that was really a bad movie. That, <laughs> yes, it no, was. And it was the, no and it was the same producer, right? It was the same producer mm-hmm. as, as uh, Independence Day. So, Bob, we're almost out of time, but I, there's another movie I want to talk about, mainly because I happen to know that you don't like it. But I would argue that, you know, if we could, if, if lowbrow pictures are essentially plot-driven and middlebrow pictures are more character-driven, that Armageddon is kind of the latter, that it's actually kind of a character-driven movie. But I happen to know, as I say, that you don't like it. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I'm sorry. I can't. I it's not ghastly of the two uh, that came out that week. Was it? Yeah, uh, the Tealione one is not as good. Yeah, I you know, eh, 
they're they're fine. I mean, on on some level, that's another one that as soon as you say what it's about, an asteroid or was that a comet crashing into the Earth, it it tells itself. I didn't think that Ben Affleck particularly covered himself in shame, but he wasn't great either. And you know, it's 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 one of those. It's one of those movies. But Stephanie, isn't it also, it's like a Fast and Furious movie. It's about this sort of group of people who are, who are a unique, semi-militaristic subculture, but they like, get along so great. It is. It has that character-driven sensibility that I think is, is, isn't in, say, like a Transformers movie. Mm, that's true. <laughs> that was NPR's Bob Mondello and The Washington Post. Stephanie Mary, and that's our show. Thanks for listening. Go see a Tom Cruise. Oh, you know what? Go watch Risky Business. That was like a really good movie. 